0: so excited to continue in our series through the book of Exodus. As you open up your Bible and turn to chapter 4, I want to start the uh, message today with a story about a guy named Ignaz Semmelweis. Semmelweis was a doctor, a physician, who worked in Europe in the 1800s, and he worked at Vienna General Hospital. That particular hospital was famous for one thing. Uh, They had a very high mortality rate in their maternity ward as many as one in 10 women would die while giving birth at this particular hospital. It had such a terrible reputation that at times women would give birth out on the sidewalk, out on the street, and then come in afterward to receive uh, medical care because there became some superstitions about this particular uh, facility. Well, Dr. Semmelweis was trying to figure out and diagnose why all these women and children were dying during childbirth at this particular hospital, but he just couldn't figure out the answer And then one day he got an idea. He began to wonder about the research that was being done in the basement of the hospital on cadavers by those same particular physicians, and he uh, began to postulate that maybe there's some causal relationship here. And uh, a lot of times back then in the 1800s, doctors would spend like half of their time working on cadavers and doing research, and then the other half of their time they would be working on live patients. And that's just kind of what it was to be a doctor back then. Nobody thought that that was a problem. And uh, Dr. Summeweiss, postulated that maybe there was these contaminated particles uh, that were being transmitted from the dead bodies to the the mothers on the hands of the physicians. And uh, consistent with that hypothesis, he instituted a brand new hospital policy that the doctors, after their research, uh, would be um, compelled to wash their hands in a chlorine and lime solution before they would go touch or work with any living patient. Well, immediately, the death rate fell from 1 in 10 to 1 in 100, and it kept getting better and better and better. And that was the very beginnings of what we know today as the germ theory. Uh, Semmelweis famously said, quote, only God knows the number of patients who were sent prematurely to their graves because of me. Imagine living with that. Uh, But he was doing his best, and the other doctors were doing their best, and they really didn't know at that time that they were carrying any kind of disease. Well, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, uh, guests with us today, I want to talk to you about an invisible spiritual germ uh, that a lot of times we carry around, but we're not often aware that we are carrying this invisible spiritual germ around. This particular germ does irreparable harm to our lives. It does irreparable harm to our relationships. It does harm to our marriages. It does harm to businesses. It does harm to churches. Uh, The invisible spiritual germ I'm talking about is pride. I say invisible, but it's really only invisible to the person who's exhibiting the pride. Everybody else around them is well aware of the pride That they are carrying because the damage is extensive and its presence is ugly and obvious. But that's the thing about pride. The biggest problem when it comes to pride is not that we have pride. It is that we cannot see when we have pride. There's a devotional book I'm reading in my personal spiritual life right now called Gentle and Lowly. My daughter bought this for me, and there was a quote this week that really caught my attention from the good doctor, Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones. Take a look at what he says. Quote, There is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We all are on very good terms with ourselves and we can always put up a good case for ourselves. The mechanism here that that Dr. Jones is referring to is the the self-justifying, self-deceptive mechanism he's talking about here is pride. And though we may not see it, pride does great damage in our life, spiritually and relationally. And pride, more importantly, perhaps we should say, puts us in direct opposition to the God of the universe, for we know that God opposes the proud. The section uh, that we're in, in our study of Exodus, is a a little bit like a case study of pride. As we look at chapters 4 through 6 today, uh, here we have a a very detailed look at a very proud man, a man named Pharaoh. It's a unique section of the Bible. I mean, what other rebel, what other enemy of God is given this much attention in the Scriptures like we have here regarding Pharaoh? Pharaoh. It allows us to look under the hood at the, the heart that opposes God and see what's going on here with this pride and this rebellion and this sin. And as we look at this passage, we want to consider three aspects of Pharaoh's pride, but we also want to take a look inside of our own hearts and see if we might notice and avoid this wicked posture in our lives so that we might turn away from it. This is a, an invisible spiritual germ. And our desire today is to neutralize it with the power of the Word of God. We're going to see three aspects to uh, Pharaoh's life. We're going to see his hardened heart, his high-handed rebellion, and his harsh treatment of the people of God. Before we dig into the Word of the Lord, why don't we pray together? God, we just pause for a moment to bow before you, the God of all. Uh, Thank you for preserving and inspiring this text for us today. Thank you for this lens that it gives us to look at things we may perhaps not care to look at all the time. But we're here today not to hear from some preacher, but to hear from you. So would you open our eyes that we might come away with a conviction and a, a resolve to pursue you in a deeper way? Would you show us by your spirit where we might be exhibiting pride in our lives? We, we invite you as we read your word to allow your word to read us. And this is what we hope and pray that you'll do today. In Jesus' name. Amen. You'll remember the context of where we are in the book of Exodus, where we left off last time. Uh, God has met with Moses on Mount Horeb. There's a burning bush. He revealed his name as I am who I am. He commissioned Moses. He gave him a staff, gave him the ability to perform these wonders, these signs and wonders. And uh, he told Pharaoh, uh, he told Moses that he has a message that he wants him to give to Pharaoh. And uh, Moses had a lot of excuses. You remember those excuses? They were all lame excuses. And God uh, worked his way through all of those excuses. And then here we come to the end of chapter 4, where we pick up the story in verse 19. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. And so Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt. And he took his staff, the staff of God in his hand. Verse 21, then the Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Let's pause for a moment there. Notice first of all in the text that word heart. Uh, the heart in the Scriptures is is what we consider to be the control center of the human being. It's the seat of the emotions, the intellect, the will. The heart uh, is really the central part of of us anthropologically in the Bible, right? Jesus said, it's out of the heart, the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Proverbs chapter 4 says, it's out of the heart that flow the issues of life. The heart is like the wellspring, and um, the, the, the wellspring is the the, the root, the seat of, of, of all that we are. That, that's our hearts. But notice here, uh, there is a hardening that is mentioned. The word for hardening here means to be calloused or to be stubborn. Actually, you'll, um, you may not notice this in English, it's not really that clear, but there's actually three different Hebrew words that come uh, to us and all get translated in most of the English Bibles as harden. Uh, chazak means to strengthen or to harden, uh, k- Kashash means to stiffen, and then kaved or kaved means to make heavy. Uh, all of these words in Hebrew mean something very similar. To make hard, to make heavy, to make calloused, to make stiff, to make weighty. And all of these three words are pointing us toward a, a comprehensiveness. They, they convey a completeness, that, that Pharaoh's heart uh, would be completely made hard through and through. And, and what, what a hard heart really means is a heart of rebellion, a heart of stubbornness, a heart of pride. Hard heartedness in the Bible would be the opposite of humility, the opposite of faith, the opposite of obedience. There's a tender posture of submission that the Lord wants from us. This would be the opposite of that posture. Now, there's something else that's, I think, interesting background here. According to Egyptian mythology, at death, the heart would be weighed by the Egyptian gods. You can see in this example of Egyptian hieroglyphics that there's a scale in this picture. That, that scale represents the afterlife, the judgment that would come according to their mythology. There's a, there's a being with a dog-like head on the picture. That's an Egyptian god. And uh, there he is weighing the heart. You'll see on the left side of the scale a heart, a human heart. Notice on the right side of the scale, there's a feather. And so what they thought was, at the end of your life, your, your heart, they believed your heart should be light. And if your heart wasn't light, if your heart wasn't lighter than a feather, you would not be making it into the afterlife. And so the heavier the heart, the more Pharaoh is in trouble. How many of you are following me? Say amen. Here we are seeing that Pharaoh's heart is very hard. And we wonder for a moment, how does this happen? How does someone's heart become hard? And the answer is there's a lot of reasons. Sometimes it's just straight-up pride, it's just straight-up selfishness, it's just straight-up rebellion. I want to do what I want, when I want, with who I want, as long as I don't hurt anybody, just leave me alone. It's my life, uh, you know, I want to do what I want to, Billy Joel, right? Leave me alone. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone. That, that's hard-heartedness. Sometimes our heart becomes hard through painful circumstances, Sometimes we get hurt. Sometimes we, we get bitter. Sometimes we get jaded. And, you know, like fool me once, shame on, shame on you. But fool me twice, shame on me. Like, I'm not letting this happen again. I'm, I, we become hard-hearted. We become jaded. How many of you remember the character in the, story, this, the, uh, the movie Toy Story 3, Lotso the Huggin' Bear? How many of you remember that guy, Lotso? Okay, for most of you, I need a little background. Lotso is a large, pink, strawberry-scented teddy bear who rules the Sunnyvale daycare like a prison, like a concentration camp. But it wasn't always like that. Lotso first appeared... Uh, as a Christmas present that that young Daisy received and instantly loved as her favorite toy. But one day, see, Daisy took Lotso and a couple of other dolls on a little drive with her parents, and they stopped at a rest stop for a little bit of playtime. And after lunch, Daisy fell asleep, and then her parents took her and put her back in the car. Uh, They accidentally, however, on that day, left Lotso and his friends behind, Lotso waited for them to return, but she never returned. Not wanting to give up, though, the film shows that Lotso and his friends made their way back to Daisy's house, only to discover there that Daisy had replaced Lotso with a brand new Lotso the bear toy, a different one, though, leaving Lotso heartbroken for life and feeling very betrayed. Well, those feelings embittered Lotso it made Lotso feel evil. It made him turn bad. It, it for, he began to forcibly order all of his friends to, to follow him as the tyrant. And the climactic movie of this film shows that Lotso has become so hard-hearted. He's a merciless tyrant that he actually leaves poor Woody and Buzz to be left to perish in an incinerator. He's too, hearted, too hard-hearted to even help the most wonderful characters. Ultimately, at the end of the film, Lotso is given kind of a poetic justice as he's forced to live out the rest of his days on the front of the radiator of this car. Because he refused to help his friends, this was the result. And I think this this simple children's story tells us something about the human condition, about how our hearts can become hard and how sometimes... We pay the price for our hard-heartedness. And though at one time we were the victim, sometimes the victim can become the victimizer, and it's a greased, slippery slope to get from here to there, and Lotso the Bear ultimately paid the price. It illustrates to me the gravity of bitterness. Though we are wronged, brothers and sisters, we must resist becoming proud and arrogant, we must humble ourselves, or like Lotso, be humbled. This is the choice before Pharaoh. But let's pause for a moment before we continue in our text and just ask some questions about our own heart for a moment. Would we consider our own hearts to be hard or soft? Would we consider ourselves to be humble and teachable or stubborn and proud? And what would those who are closest to us say about our hearts. Now, remember, we said earlier, pride is invisible. It hides itself. And so for this reason, I want us to take this morning what we call the pride test. I've got eight questions for you. They're just yes or no questions. You get one point for every yes. The pride test. Ready? Question number one. Do you long for a lot of attention? Some people are really dramatic. Like, they're just really needy, really clingy, really really desperate. Other people are just big personalities and, and that, that, that they're very vocal about it. That could be pride. Question two, do you become jealous or critical of people who succeed? Oh, they didn't deserve that. I, you know, I could do better than them. That could be pride. Three, do you always have to win or be first? You know what always cracks me up? People who cheat at board games. I'm like... <laughs> There's no trophy. There's no prize here. What? what you're cheating, dude. Like, why are you? I, do you have to be first? Are you one of those people that cuts in line on the freeway too? Like, not when your wife's about to deliver a baby. Like all the time, you go on the shoulder and then go through for another. I'm going to get in here at the front because why? Because you're more important than everybody else. That could be pride. Do you always have to be first? Number four. Do you have a posture of lying? Or do you have a hard time confessing when you're wrong? See, a lot of times lying is about making myself look better than I really am, to make myself be perceived as someone that I'm truly not. Or when I'm confronted, instead of confessing, I get defensive. That could be pride. Number five, do you have a lot of conflicts with other people? Pride really shows up super clear when you're in conflict, doesn't it? I'm right, hello. I remember being in this conversation with a guy one time, this was years ago, and in the middle of this, this discussion, he goes, ding dong, you're wrong. I'm like, ding dong, I'm wrong? Like, how, how old are we right now? Like, what in the world? Pride shows up in conflict. Like, my opinion is right, you're wrong. My opinion is more important than yours. The proud and the proud are always going at it. Now, sometimes humble people have conflict, sometimes, okay? It happens, but it's not a pattern. Like, with the proud, they're always in conflict. Number six, do you get upset when people do not honor your service? See, pride shows up when something small needs to be done, and you don't want to do it. Like, you want me to stack chairs? You think, I'm too good to be bothered by such mundane things. See how that could be prideful? Or when you do do it, you think, N- see, I did that. Nobody even sent me a card to say thank you. No- nobody, you know, nobody even says good job. Why do I bother? You see how that's an ugly spirit of pride there? Seven, do you tend more toward an attitude of entitlement or thankfulness? Hey, I deserve better than this. I remember having a conversation with an accountability partner about this one time in my life, and I was kvetching. I was complaining about everything that I was, you know, thought I deserved and I'm like, oh, see, this happened, and then this, and then, you know. And he's like, okay, Dave, why don't you write a list of everything you deserve? Just write a list. We'll talk later. Just write it all down. So I bring it back. I'm like, okay, I got my list. Let's take it. He goes, let's take a look at Romans 6.23 before you do your list. Here's, here's what you deserve. It says, the wages of sin is death. <laughs> That's what you're entitled to, Dave. All your list of stuff that you're upset about, that you deserve, that you think you should. Actually, the Bible says you're not entitled to any of that. It's, uh, it's grace just that you're still breathing and living and able to uh, borrow God's air here, right? Do you tend more toward an attitude of entitlement or thankfulness? Then last, kind of a catch-all, number eight, do you feel superior to others? In your heart, is there this smugness, like I'm better than everyone, Okay, there's the test. Give yourself one point for every yes, and um, here's how you're gonna score it, okay? If you scored one through eight, you're proud. If you scored zero, you are very proud. (laughs) You say, Pastor Dave, what'd you get? 35, okay, 35, maybe 45. Some of them are like double for me, okay? So I think we all would just have to recognize that there's a little pride inside of all of us. There's a little Pharaoh that lives in there, and it's good for us to see it. Otherwise, it's an invisible spiritual germ, and everybody else sees it but us. And Let's go back to Pharaoh for a moment. If you take a look again at this passage in Exodus 4, there's something else going on here also. It says here in Exodus chapter 4, let me put that slide up there for you. It says here that it was God who hardened his heart. Did you notice that? That's really confusing. Like, how does that work? Who's responsible here? This, this raises a lot of theological questions for us, doesn't it? That's something we have difficulty with. Now, it's also true throughout the book of Exodus that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And we see that in many other passages. Exodus 7.3, 7.13, 8.15, 8.32. Pharaoh hardens his own heart. We see that. And so some people say, okay, God hardened Pharaoh's heart merely in the sense that God allowed Pharaoh to harden his own heart. Well, allow me to bring to the witness stand Pastor Mark Dever, who who said this, quote, I appreciate the attraction of that opinion. It is not lost on me. But I just want to point out that that's not what it says here in Exodus 4.21. It was God's purpose to harden Pharaoh's heart. And one of the things that the book of Exodus communicates to us is who's really in control here. And it's not Pharaoh. See, Pharaoh believed that he was one of the gods. But here in Exodus, we learn that the real God, the true God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is exercising his sovereign control over everything and over everyone, including Pharaoh, Remember, we said this at the very beginning of the series, all of the world's a stage. This is a play in which God is the author, God is the producer, God is the director, and God's also the principal actor. And I think the main point here shouldn't be missed. Circumstances do not determine God's plan. God's plan determines the circumstances. That's the story of Exodus. That's the message of the whole Bible. God works sovereignly. Now, that doesn't mean he violates Pharaoh's own free will, as Pharaoh is happy to rebel out of his own volition. It's kind of like that place in the New Testament where it says Judas betrayed Jesus, and Herod and Pontius Pilate conspired against uh, Jesus to crucify him, but at the same time, Acts 4 says this was exactly what God foreordained would happen. Same thing here. The God of the Bible, listen, the God of the Bible acts in human affairs and accomplishes what he wants. He hardens whom he hardens. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. And he does this without violating the will of the human agent. Instead, he uses their own rebellious free will as a secondary cause to do whatever he wants to do. Now, I know that's hard to understand, But I think it's the message of Exodus. And so here's the plan. Moses will go. Ultimately, he will be successful. But he's warned in advance that he should expect a great deal of resistance from Pharaoh. What is it going to take to get through to this guy? What would it take to get through to Pharaoh? That's the question. So God tells Moses to give Pharaoh this warning. Take a look at 22 Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, Let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. And here's one of the places in the Old Testament where God refers to the entire nation of Israel as his son. This is not a group of people who are just slaves, like machines. God says, I'm their father. I'm their dad. It's much more personal for me. You're dehumanizing them. And the culmination of this eventually is going to be a battle at the 10th plague. And it's a choice between sons. And God's going to say, I'm going to give you that choice. I will spare your son if you spare my son. But if you don't, if you mistreat my son, you will leave me no choice. I will come after your son as well. And that's where the whole thing's headed. And so here is when we turn to chapter 5. Moses has the message. He's prepared. He's got his bro Aaron. They are headed back to Egypt. Uh, He's got his staff. He's got his signs and his wonders. He's got his commission from God. And now they are going into Pharaoh's court for the moment of truth. Chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Moses lays it all on the table. As an ambassador of God himself, Pharaoh is given imperative commands from Yahweh. Pharaoh, probably for the first time in his whole life, is given a subordinate position to someone here. Oftentimes, you see pictures of Pharaoh uh, that are very regal. You see see him holding a staff, a symbol of Pharaoh's authority over the whole world. Uh, Let me put a picture on the screen for you. You see he's got his staff, he's got his authority, but here we see Moses comes with his own staff. Moses comes with another source of authority. Oftentimes, you'll see Pharaoh has a a hooded cobra on his uh, headdress there. He's, he's He's got that symbol But here, Moses comes with his own snake. Do you see what's going on? This is the ultimate showdown between Moses and Pharaoh, but more importantly, between the God of Israel and the Egyptian pagan idols of Pharaoh. And here, the mighty Pharaoh is being given commands. Moses is telling him, you're not in charge of the world, Pharaoh. Yahweh is. And Yahweh says to you, let my people go. So, what's Pharaoh's response? Well, as you might guess, he's not really that happy about this, which leads us to movement two. We've seen Pharaoh's hardened heart, and now we will see Pharaoh's high handed rebellion. Take a look at chapter five and verse two. Pharaoh said, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And I will not let him go, not let Israel go. Now, don't misunderstand this. Pharaoh is not asking an innocent question, asking for more information. This is a statement of utter disrespect. This is a statement of defiance. This is a declaration of his arrogance. In the Hebrew Scriptures, there's a parallel uh, question in 1 Samuel 25, where they ask before David takes the throne, Who is David? Who is David that he thinks he's king over us? That's the spirit of Pharaoh's question. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? This is such a breathtaking statement, such a provocative question, that response right there. It's almost sarcastic. One scholar described it this way, quote, the critical issue to be settled is nothing less than who is in charge. Who has the authority over the people of Israel and ultimately over all nations and all creation? The God of Israel or the gods of Egypt Manifest in Pharaoh. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And in a way, I think this becomes the central question in the book of Exodus and the central question of our lives as well. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Who is the supreme being who has the right to demand my posture of submission and obedience and praise from me and every single creature, including you? Who is the Lord that we should obey him? That's a good question. Now, Pharaoh's an extreme case. But all of us have this battle going on for the authority person of our hearts. We all do. And we all have to face this same issue. Will I be autonomous, insisting I am the one in control of my life, or will I surrender my heart and live for the only sovereign God who rules over all nature and all human beings and all things? That's the question. That's the battle of Exodus. And we face that battle as well. We all ask this question. Now, for the non-Christian, for the non-believer, it's much more overt. It's it's much more obviously resistant toward God, right? There's, There's always something rebellious about unbelief. It's been said that the atheist statement of faith is, there is no God and I hate him. There is rebellion embedded inside of atheism. Uh, recently, I've been sort of watching John Piper's son, Abraham, as he garners thousands of followers to his TikTok channel and it's just spewing hatred for God and the Bible and the gospel and Christianity. It's very, very obvious when it comes from the lips of a non-Christian. But sometimes even for us as Christians, in one area of our lives or another, it's more subtle as we are asking this question about his lordship too. For some of us, it's in our physical health. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? For some of us, it's in the area of our finances and giving and offering. Who, who is the Lord that I should obey him? For some of us, it's, it's in some other area of, of, of gossip or, or lust or dishonesty or unforgiveness or some other behavior in our lives that we don't want to let go of and we are secretly asking, who, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Do you have the courage to ask yourself this morning, what is that area for you? Do you have the courage to invite the Spirit of God to show you some area in your life where that question is actually playing itself out right now in your heart? Do you have the courage to examine yourself and just invite God to show you where is little Pharaoh living in me right now? Not if I have pride, Lord, but could you show me where and how exactly I'm currently exhibiting pride in my life? I know it's in there, but I often can't see it, but show me, where's that haughty spirit in me today? Where's that obstinacy? Where do I have a hard heart? Ask God to reveal that to you. The scripture tells us, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. So Pharaoh asked that defiant, provocative question, and and here's how Moses and Aaron respond in verse 3. It says, Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. (laughs) Moses, I don't know who that is. Notice Moses and Aaron's response here. They, They reiterate the fact that this message is not from them. This is from God. In the words of George H.W. Bush, they say, Pharaoh, read my lips. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. He's the one who has this message. God is speaking to you through us, these two old men. If you don't listen to him, there's consequences. God will send plagues and a sword. Now, now modern day readers hear about these plagues, the 10 plagues, and they, they give one of two very superficial responses to this. First, some people say, yep, that's right. God needs to get them. Bring the plagues. Bring the heat. Bring the wrath. Bring the judgment. Friends, that's not what's going on. The other response people give is, you see what I mean? Plagues this is what's wrong with the Old Testament. This is what's wrong with the God of the Bible. This is what's wrong with religion in general. That's why I got out. There's so much judgment, there's so much wrath, there's so much anger, there's so much hate going on. But, friends, both of those responses are very superficial and they display that you don't understand the message of Exodus whatsoever. The reason for the plagues, what triggers the plagues, is Pharaoh's question Who is the Lord? that I should obey him. Now here they're asking for a 3-day journey. Did you notice that? Is that true? Is that what they really wanted? Did they ever have any actual intention to return back to Egypt after 3 days? Are they negotiating in bad faith here? Is this kind of sneaky? Well, there's a few ways to handle this difficulty. You could say, "Hey, Pharaoh is an enemy of God. He has no right to demand the truth from God's people." But Perhaps better is to say God is giving Pharaoh a very small litmus test. This is a simple opportunity to submit to God's authority in a very tiny way. In other words, was Pharaoh willing to even let them go for just three days? And the answer in the text is no. And this exposes how hard-hearted and obstinate Pharaoh really was which leads us to movement three. We've seen Pharaoh's hard heart. We've seen his high-handed rebellion. And then last we see in our text, Pharaoh's harsh treatment of the people of God. Things are about to go from bad to worse. Verse six says, that same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You're no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. But require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies like Moses and Aaron's lies. Making bricks was a hard job. But Pharaoh is a tyrant. Pharaoh is a bully. Pharaoh is demanding quotas without resources. He's like the worst boss that you've ever had in your whole life. This is what happens When the heart grows hard we begin to hate god and then we begin to even hate god's people and pride brings us not just spiritual problems but it starts to bring relational problems it starts to bring social problems as well but this is no random decree spoken hasty anger this is a calculated move on pharaoh's part as a leader to drive a wedge between moses and the people this is to create internal conflict and that is exactly what will happen Interestingly, archaeologically, as, as the excavators uh, discover sort of the architecture of ancient Egypt, most of the bricks that they find down there, uh, as you see on this picture on the screen, you can see little pieces of straw in the brick just testifying to this is exactly the kind of engineering that the Egyptians were using at the time, testifying to the truthfulness of God's word. But there's a little tiny section of Egypt in the city of Tel el Maskuta which reveals a very small amount of projects that are made with bricks with no straw. An archaeologist once said, I don't remember to have met anywhere else in Egypt where there were any bricks that are made like this. I just emphasize that to you as kind of a side comment to remind you that Exodus is not fantasy literature. This is grounded in real history. This is the true account of the activity of God in our world. Friends, the grass withers, the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. So things go from bad to worse, and then we pick up the story here in verse 15. It says, Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we're told, make bricks? Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. It's the Egyptians. Pharaoh said, Lazy. Lazy. That's what you are, lazy. That's why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You, must be, you, must, you will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The text goes on in verse 19 to say, the Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. And when they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Here they begin to turn on Moses and Aaron, the leaders. You're not helping us here, dudes. You're making things worse. We're sorry we ever invited you to come here. Everything you've done so far has been counterproductive. They completely misunderstand. Moses is not the reason for their oppression. Moses is their liberator. But yet this thing keeps getting messier and messier and messier, and the tension is building and building and building. And then Moses turns to the Lord, saying, Lord, your people need help. Verse 22, Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's brought trouble on this people, and and you have not rescued your people at all. You ever serve God and obey God and things don't get better, they get worse? That doesn't necessarily mean you're outside of God's will. I remember when I first answered God's call in my life to go into the ministry and enter Bible college and and I was just loving it. And I, I was talking to my pastor at the time, Pastor Jack. I'm like, this is just so, I'm, I'm just amazed at the Word of God. Never studied the Word of God before. It was just soaking it in like a sponge. And I said, it's just so cool to be right in the, the center of God's will. I just, I, I feel so blessed. And, and Pastor Jack, who's Johnny's uncle, by the way, Pastor Jack wisely, wisely encouraged me and, and affirmed me, paused and said, just watch out, Dave now you're going to start getting it from the other side. The Apostle Paul says, oh, a wide door for ministry has opened up to me and with it many adversaries. Just because you're obeying God doesn't necessarily mean things are going to be smooth. In fact, you have a target on your back now. Now, how do we respond when that happens, right? When we obey God and things get harder, not better... How do we react, and what does the way about how we react say about our original motivation and our affections in the first place? Do I only serve and obey God so that things will go well for me, or do I obey and serve God because he is worthy of my obedience and service and worship? Now, that's a really good question. And Moses turns to the Lord, and and then God responds here in chapter 6. Verse 1, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Drop down to verse 6 with me. Therefore, say this to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will bring you out. "'from under the yoke of the Egyptians. "'I will free you from being slaves to them. "'I will redeem you with an outstretched arm "'and with a mighty axe of judgment. "'I will take you as my own people. "'I will be your God. "'Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, "'who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, "'and I will bring you to the land I swore "'with uplifted hand to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, "'and I will give it to you as a possession. "'I am the Lord.'" Notice all of the I wills in this section. There are seven promises that God gives in a row. Did you catch them all? God says, first, I will bring you out. Second, I will free you. Third, I will redeem you. Fourth, I will take you as my own people. Fifth, I will be your God. Sixth, I will bring you to that land. And seven, when you get there, I'll give it to you. These are the amazing promises of our God, promises of redemption and adoption and provision and security and a great inheritance. And how much more do we, the people of God today, enjoy these great and precious promises? God will do it. But first, he has some business with Pharaoh. Pharaoh has just put himself in a direct conflict in between him and his son. Pharaoh has just inserted himself in the family business. Pharaoh has just put himself right in the middle of a conflict between God and his people who he loves. And Pharaoh thinks he's big stuff, but the ironic twist to this story, the ironic twist at this detailed look at this rebel is though he was so concerned with his own authority and his own name and his own autonomy, and Pharaoh making himself look great, yet today we have no idea which Pharaoh we're talking about. Today we don't even know who this was. We don't know his name. Why did Yahweh want Pharaoh to do this? What exactly did Yahweh want Pharaoh to do? Was it just let my people go? When Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? That provocative question. What does Yahweh want Pharaoh to do? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? What does Yahweh want Pharaoh to do? Let me put that question up on the screen for you. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? What does Yahweh want Pharaoh to do? The answer, friends, is the same for him as it is for us. The God of the Bible wants us to recognize his sovereignty and submit to his authority. And so this story is begging us to make that same choice that Pharaoh needs to make. It's in the form of a binary decision. Will we harden our hearts in stubborn obstinacy or will we bow our knees in submission to God's authority? That's the question. Will we be like Pharaoh and say, who's the Lord that I should obey him or will I humble myself under his mighty hand? Friends, your answer to that question will determine the course of the rest of your life. But if you want to be remembered, not forgotten like Pharaoh, if you want to live a life of significance a life that's pleasing to God and a blessing to others, the scriptures would exhort you to let go of your pride, to soften your heart, to bow your knee to Yahweh. St. Augustine famously said, pride is the root of every other sin. How many of you seen that movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding? Remember that movie? Remember there's that character in the movie where he always says, give me a word, any word, and I will show you how the root of that word comes from the Greek. Remember that guy? And somehow you give him a word and he always traces it back somehow to the Greek root. Remember that guy? The Bible has something very similar to say to us here. Give me a sin, any sin, and I will show you how the root of that sin comes from pride. In other words, when we look at all the darkness in this world, all the sin, all the hatred, the murder, the wars, the fights, the quarrels, the abuse, the division on social media, the difficulty in maintaining healthy relationships, it can all be traced back to pride. Pride is an invisible germ that needs to be neutralized. God is opposed to the proud. And I'll say this to myself, Dave, God is opposed to proud pastors. God is opposed to proud elders. God is opposed to proud teachers. God is opposed to proud fathers. God is opposed to proud mothers. God is opposed to the proud. And do not think to yourself when I say that, that, oh, well, I am not proud. There is always a time in our life where we are being proud, and when we are being proud, in that moment, God is opposed to us. And that's a losing battle instead the scriptures would exhort us to humble ourselves in the sight of the lord and he will lift us up as i was reading that devotional this week and i had that dr jones quote and that mechanism thing he said something very compelling he said there's really only one way to short circuit this mechanism there's really only one distinctively christian way to dissolve our pride And that one way is to fix our attention and fix our focus on the God of the universe. Because when we fix our eyes on the God of the universe and see all that he is, omniscient, omnipotent, perfectly just, perfectly holy, perfectly merciful, perfectly loving, we can't help but to step back and take our proper place in the universe. And so as we fix our eyes on the Lord we all of a sudden begin to cultivate humility in our hearts. I am not a humble man. I am a proud man pursuing humility by the grace of God, fixing my eyes on the most humble person who ever lived. You see, 1,500 years later, after the story of Exodus, a different prophet, a different mediator than Moses came. Like Pharaoh, he had sovereign authority with a very wide-ranging influence But this leader did not come to exalt himself, rather he came to humble himself. He did not come to lord over, he came to get up under the burden of all of mankind. And he introduced the truest definition of what it means to be great. His heart was not heavy and hard, his heart was gentle and lowly. And he said, I know you you see how the world works and it's all you know. It's full of people and leaders and And proud business owners and proud people who live in grandiosity and obstinacy and pride. It's all you've ever seen. It's all you've ever known. But I've come to turn all of that upside down. I want to leverage my authority and all my power for the weak, for the powerless. And rather than in arrogance and pride, I want to come with meekness. And I've come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And when we fix our eyes on him, especially on his work on the cross, we say with Isaac Watts, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and I pour contempt on all my pride. As the worship team comes, I want to remind you of an ancient Christian hymn that's found in Philippians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul writes this, Should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice that phrase tucked away in that ancient Christian hymn. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. When we say those three words, that's an acknowledgement that he has everything under his control. You see, to say Jesus is Lord is a statement of great comfort and great encouragement. You can say that when everything looks bleak in your life, Jesus is Lord. It's a way of confessing to myself that he's got everything covered, and I'm just going to humble myself under his mighty hand. I might not see it in what's happening right now, but Jesus is Lord, and I recognize that statement by faith. It might look like the other side's winning right now, but Jesus is Lord. It might look like your problems are too great, you can't handle them. Jesus is Lord. Circumstances might pile up against you. People may thwart you and fight you. Jesus is Lord. You might think you can't cope anymore. There's too much pressure. You can't make bricks without straw forever. Jesus is Lord. Friends, say that phrase when you're exhausted. Jesus is Lord. Say that phrase when you're discouraged. Jesus is Lord. Say that phrase when you're afraid. Jesus is Lord. Say that phrase when you're grieving and you don't know why somebody has died. Jesus is Lord. And say that phrase when you can't go one more step. Jesus is Lord. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? His name is Jesus Christ. He is Lord. And Heavenly Father, how grateful we are for revealing to us not only the obstinacy and the stubbornness and the pride of our hearts but also for providing a way when there was no way. Thank you Lord Jesus for your meekness and your humility and for your great example but most of all for paving a path of redemption and salvation and a sacrifice for us that we might place our faith in you and be made right before God. And for those of us who have already made that decision would you continue to find us to be pursuing a life of humble submission to your authority. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.